Hello and welcome to the Lively Faith Podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Nathan Stomberg, Rector of Holy Communion Anglican Church in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. And today I am once again joined by my fellow presbyter, the Reverend Mark Galloway, and Corey DuPont, subdeacon at St. Mary Antiochian Orthodox Church in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Before we get started, we would love to stay in touch with you. Why not click the link in the description and join our email list? We'll send you occasional emails about new episodes and other important updates. And, of course, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Now, at the time of this recording, gentlemen, we have well over 3,000 total downloads of this podcast. We want to thank you, the listener, so much for your support, and we thank God for his continued blessings. So today, we've got a really interesting topic. We're going to be talking about chronic illness, living with chronic illness, and the mental, emotional, and spiritual challenges that come along with it. And this is really going to be more of an interview conversation with our friend Reverend Mark Galloway here, and we'll talk about his experience in just a few minutes. I think it's probably most important for us at the start here to make clear that none of this is going to be medical advice. We are not medical professionals. hardly professionals of any kind, (laughs) but we recognize that illness, chronic illness, is something that affects many people, either directly or indirectly, through people who they know and love, and it's really a silent burden in a lot of cases, so we want to explore the spiritual and emotional aspects, the practical aspects of living and caring for people who struggle with these things, so... Mark, I'll turn it over to you. How are you doing today? Okay. <laughs> and it's, on a de- it's, it's a no- normal day. Just a normal day. Yeah. I think maybe that's a good place to start. What does normal day mean for you? Um, well, we, we need a little bit more background right? what we're talking about. Yeah, there. so chronic illness, what would you describe your condition as? So people who know you and are close to you understand that you have had a, we we'll call it a neurological condition for a number of years. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I have, I have a variation of Parkinson's uh, disease um, that has a few other corollaries to it um, that all stems from neurological disorder yeah that started in my late 40s i'm 59 now and uh and then got tremendously expedited by a car accident Mm. in 2012 that really affected my spinal column which just um, made the the neurological things uh, much worse Mm. so yeah it's been quite a while now that I've been dealing with them, so. Uh, and it's progressive, mm-hmm. you know, Parkinson's. There's no cure to Parkinson's. And, this, and the, other, <clears throat> the other piece of it, which is also a neurological disorder, POT syndrome, which mm. many people don't have any idea what it is. I didn't until I found out I had it. Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, mm-hmm. which is another neurological <clears throat> disorder where your, your brain's not um, sending the right messages to your body about 
changes in posture and uh, or, um, things that make your blood pressure go up or down, and it causes vertigo mm. and uh, loss of balance and can make you pass out, all kinds of things. And so they're related. Uh, so both POTS and Parkinson's. Yeah, the Parkinson's, is, it's, it's uh, Parkinson's I learned as I went through testing, and I was tested initially for ALS because they just simply didn't really know at the time what was going on. Um, and when people think of Parkinson's, Parkinson's they, they speak in, they, they have this stereotypical view. They see the old man shuffling and these steps. And Parkinson's, as I learned from the doctor that did my assessment, he, he is a southern guy who went to went to um, Yale doctor, and I'm in Connecticut at this special hospital that <clears throat> works with Parkinson's patients. And I asked him, "Well, what is Parkinson's?" And he, he says in his southern drawl, "To be honest with you, we don't have any idea." <laughs> <laughs> he goes, "Parkinson's is a big catch phrase for all kinds of neurological problems that manifest themselves really uniquely in every person. Hmm. There are, you know, obviously there's crossover patterns with people, but there's no, there's no, no thing about Parkinson's you can put your thumb on. And so mine, mine specifically uh, is under a subsection called stiff man syndrome. It, and it's where your, your muscles just 24 seven fire involuntarily. Wow. wow. And, um, and there's no cure to it. And <clears throat> if you've ever had like your worst Charlie horse, your worst back spasm, that's what it is, right? And so when, you know, I can remember before I had Parkinson's, when you have a spasm, you're like, I can't live with this, right? If you ever had a back spasm, you're like, how? And then over the last, you know, 10, 12 years, it's the challenge of learning how to deal with it mm. and put it in, put it in place and over being able to mentally and physically deal with uh, what you have yeah. without letting it uh, overtake you. Right. I imagine it's been a long process to understate it, getting to that point and to that realization, in a sense, or really learning to live with your condition. I think really just for context, would you be comfortable talking about the process through which you noticed the disease through which it came on and kind of the history with it over the last however many years of your life? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's interesting, you know, um, you know my background, uh, producer Joshua. I mean, I was um, a very good athlete, you know, Division One athlete, and then I ran, I was a professional athlete for five years. And the idea in my life that I ever would come to a point where I couldn't do the things that uh, had just been like a natural to me since I was a little boy, hand-eye coordination, all of these things that come with athletic prowess. And, and uh, But I did diagnose, actually when you were in high school and Josh was in high school and I was coaching track, uh, it was around 2010 or 11, I started to notice I just was having troubles controlling my muscles and different things and I wasn't I didn't have a clue what it was and um, so it was developing and getting worse and uh, the irony about kind of the crescendo of this the car accident was I was in 
at the national conference for our denomination. I was uh, actually presenting a theological paper and um, that I had been working on for a couple of years, been asked by the denomination to form this position paper. And this was in Denver, Colorado. And I was, and this whole thing with POTS came on me like the week I was there. Hmm. And uh, I literally couldn't walk 20 feet. Wow. And um, I was just a total neurological mess. Uh, and I, I was overwhelmed. I didn't really know what was happening to me. And uh, somehow, by God's grace, I presented the paper, read it, and uh, did the whole process with, that I was there to do. But uh, I spent the rest of the week in my hotel room just incapacitated and um, and I came home from there back to Church of the Apostles at the time and uh, I called a meeting of the, of the other presbyters and the deacons to say hey something's going on with me I need to meet with you uh, you know I, I certainly need medical something <clears throat> needs to happen it's just a week within the week I got back from from uh, Colorado um, and we're, I'm on my way driving there, Western Coventry, Route 117. Yep. And um, got my blinker on, stopped to pull left down the road where we're going to meet at somebody's house, a deacon's house. And the young woman uh, was not paying attention, texting, and she ran into me at 55 miles an hour. Wow. And uh, <laughs> then I was a real mess. Um, uh, I was just not. I was really in a semi-coma for in and out for four or five months after wow. that. And um, I would have days of fluidity, days of not. Um, um, I was literally in the, in the house that we were living in, and the room had to be dark. I couldn't have the lights on, couldn't watch television. It was, I was just not with it. And for the first six or eight weeks after the accident, uh, if you'd come in and talk to me, my wife, whoever it was, I'd be looking at you because it sounded like you were doing the Charlie Brown thing. That's crazy. And my mind's like, what's going on? You know, it's like, Corey, why can't you, why don't you speak English anymore type of thing? And that's always been the case. Yes, that's true. And that's why I didn't yeah, think there's anything, anything wrong with me. <laughs> and, and then you realize, you know, it's you. There's something wrong with you. Right? Yeah. And so... And then began this laborious process of, um, of trying to find out what was wrong. And uh, you know, meanwhile, I couldn't pass at the church. I, I was out till January. I went back in January thir 2013. Was there ever a point? And I wasn't ready. And I even then, I, I could have been out another year. Yeah. And, but it was. Uh, there must have been points at that time when. Either you or others weren't sure if you were going to make it, or, or even even just, I guess the future must have been very, very uncertain. Oh yeah, I had no idea. I, I had no idea. I, I didn't feel like I was going to die uh, at that point, uh, but I didn't know I would ever get back to some kind of cognitive normalcy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, um, and I don't know if I ever have. You guys, you guys can be good witnesses to that. Well, right? uh, we won't say anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We might not so, be the best people to ask. Um, 
But it's like anything that you, you've not experienced, that, and then you experience all of a sudden just utter overload. Is um, it's like anything you can't, you just don't know what you're doing, you know. And so then there's, and, and then it's 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 like I said, it's a laborious process to find out. People just look up to you. Oh, you have this, you have that. It is right. You go through. Uh, I found out finally it was in November of that year, November of 2012, and uh, the cardiologist who ended up figuring this out, and he was wonderful. Um, he put me, he says, I, I got a feeling about you, a thing called a tilt test. And they actually put you on a board, mm. and they tilt you, put you upside down, and then they just, and, and then they really restrain your appendages and leave you in a fixed position. <clears throat> and, you know, and then they get you all hooked up all this stuff, and and uh, in six minutes, I, they, and I was in the upright position when this happened, just by straining me against the wall, it took six minutes and I passed out. Wow. And, um, and he's like, you have POTS. And then that was my introduction to learning what this whole syndrome was. And that your system does this, it'll crash out. And, wow. And so. What was it like when you <clears throat> first received that diagnosis? Because I've heard and I can imagine when you're struggling with something and you're going to all these different doctors and there's nobody who can really figure out, like you just said, and put a name to it, is there a, a relief? I imagine there's something of a, does a light bulb come on? I've, I've heard that there's relief associated with being able to put a name to the thing that you're struggling with. Uh yeah, the first piece, you know, learning that I had POTS was, it made sense. I looked back on what was happening in that year or so before. You know, I was running a lot. I was running a lot of miles. You know, I was running 50, 60 miles a week. All of a sudden, I couldn't, run, I couldn't run 100 yards. I knew something wasn't right. And then so that was, it was a relief to find out I had this, and then I had to learn <coughs> that there's no cure to it. And, um, and uh, my brother-in-law said to me, he goes, you had the best luck. POTS is a thing that affects mostly um, adolescent girls hmm. and uh, or women postpartum and, and basically some menopausal, postmenopausal women. It only affects 2% of men. Hmm. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, must have built up your yeah, uh, yeah. confidence. Said, yeah. you're, Excellent. You're a woman. Yeah, so yeah. Literally, literally in North America, <clears throat> of all like the diagnosed cases of POTS, is like less than 200 men who have it. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so you know, it's like, I'm like, is there any conventions for us, you know, yeah. type of thing where you, right? And uh, of course the answer to that's no. So you, I've, I've never met another male yet. Is there a treatment for it? No. It's no cure to it. But is there anything that can alleviate um, the symptoms of it? Well, there's there's um, things you continue to do. You need to exercise. You actually need salt in your diet. You hmm. need to, yeah, I remember my doctor. He goes, he says, every time you're near McDonald's or Burger King, you can't do this anymore. He goes, go in there and steal 50 packets of salt. <laughs> so, this was just, the cardiologist. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'd have them in my truck, just packages and packages of them. You know, um, um, what, what is that supposed to do? It 
it, it put salt in your system so that uh, I don't know all the science of it, but it uh, it helps with uh, main balancing off the um, results of pots and so forth, and and you have to stay hydrated and keep exercising. Sure, sure. And so forth. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the pots was easy to deal with, but you know the, the things that eventually became the variation of Parkinson's went on for years. I mean, that, that starts, starts in 12, and I, I go back to work. I, I retired in 2015 because I, had, I, I never got back to being efficient to my satisfaction as a pastor and having responsibility for five other presbyters and eight deacons, and, and uh, I just came to the moral conclusion I needed to retire that I and I needed to focus on trying to figure out how to really maintain my life and, and some healthy balance after that very that was the most difficult spiritual time um, ha having to concede in myself that it was time to let somebody else do a job that I mm. felt I did well and I loved and I mean, I could have hung around and people would have let you hang around and be the pastor and all that stuff, but it would not have been the morally right thing to do. Um, and then that whole transition when I was no longer, um, you know, priest and pastor, all of a sudden, it's like a death happens, right? You're not, you're not this person you once were, and, uh, and I just couldn't move. I was on my back for seven, eight hours of the day, the waking day. And this went on for, you know, from 15, 16, 17, 18. And um, it wasn't until 2018, after long processes, that ALS was eliminated and then through different testing that I had this variation of, of, of Parkinson's strata. And then the, through the whole process, you know, I went from my job, I was making $90,000 a year, to having no income, <laughs> right? And, and um, the pension I do have, I'm not eligible to collect until I'm 65 years old. And in 2015, I was 51 years old. It's oh. a long time. Right. And um, so uh, I began a process for disability, which... I got rejected twice and ended up having to go to the federal court of appeal. And eventually it took seven years, but I finally won the appeal, which was a miracle the way the whole thing, in my opinion, worked out because the odds were like minimum that that was going to happen. But by God's grace, the judge and the lawyer did an excellent job I had. And um, so I've been on disability since. 2020, I think, or something like that. So, and, uh, so yeah, it, it's, it's tremendous challenges. But um, So going back really to what we were talking about at the start then, what does normal look like for you now? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm trying to put this, because I, I, I'm not a, I, um, I, I don't, when I talk to you, I don't, want to have a conversation about having Parkinson's because you're looking for sympathy. Mm -hmm. You've heard me say, and Corey has, I've said it 
hundred times in sermons. Life's not a suffering contest. You don't have to go look for suffering in life. Suffering's gonna come your way. Everybody gets it in measure. And uh, there's nothing unique or special about how much you suffer. Um, so uh, I, I never tried to advertise it that way or look for sympathy, because sympathy doesn't make any difference. I, I was thinking my college roommate was, a, was, was the premier runner on our team at the University of Rhode Island, and he had a saying above his bed, talks cheap and it doesn't buy a rum. <laughs> talks cheap yeah. and it doesn't buy a rum, right? And that's very true. Talks cheap, right? And uh, as a Christian, particularly, as a baptized Christian and as a Christian priest and pastor, you know, we have to model Christianity, we have to model our faith. It's easy to be a Christian to a large extent when there's no pressure, no cultural pressure, you're in, you're in fine health, everything's going mm -hmm. wonderful. It's like, uh, it's like, you know, you're not in a foxhole yet, so you don't have to confront all of these issues yeah. about what faith really means to you. Can you, be, can you be all those things you were before your malady? Do you have the metal, the character, and the faith to be that person still? And I realize this is part of what, in God's providence, nothing, there's no surprises to God. God knew before right. all eternity that I have Parkinson's disease. So you can, and you, excuse me, you can in your life either be mad at God about that and become a curmudgeon and live your life in this horrific, unchristian example, or you can, you can accept you have it, do your best to deal with it through techniques and methodologies that help you, mm -hmm. and then continue to be a Christian witness about, this is how it is. This yeah. is how it is, you know. You think about, you know, you know people, most people, I think you know the story of the great Lou Gehrig, Mm. Yeah, the first baseman of the New York Yankees, who was the antithesis of Babe Ruth. Everything Ruth was socially and in his moral behavior, Garrick wasn't right. He was this upstanding, devout husband, man of tremendous moral character, and all of a sudden, within a year's time, he develops this disease that carries his name now, Lou Gehrig's disease, you know, ALS, and. Um, you know, within a season he's out of baseball and within two years he's dead and he gives this famous speech at Yankee Stadium. It's one of the most famous speeches a non-politician's ever given in America and he stands at the microphone and he says, today I consider myself the luckiest man on earth. And despite, and he knew he would die. Even in, you know, 1939, they knew that this disease was going to be fatal for him in a relatively short period of time. And, um, to me, that's always been my challenge, and, and I, I think at some level I shifted when I got my spiritual bearings back and my courage back that that's your new vocation, more so than being a theologian and all these things that I got notoriety for a lot in the church and, and acclaim, and I achieved whatever that means <laughs> in church ranks, but um, that, that phase of my life was more or less over. And uh, my new phase was like just witnessing and living Christianity in a way that is um, exemplar, not because all of a sudden yeah. I was sinless, but, but that um, 
But I'd be like, Mark, if you can't deal with this, how do you expect anybody you've ever preached the gospel to deal with difficulty? Right. The rubber starts to meet the road. Yeah. I want to reflect on that for a minute. Talk's cheap, but don't buy your own. Exactly. (laughs) And it goes back to what you were saying a few minutes ago about grief and mourning. I think there is a very real mourning process that goes on where you have to grieve the life that you had before. And this happens with any sort of major life transition or tragedy. And unless you go through that process, you're always going to be clinging and trying to reclaim right. what, you, what you were before some tragedy or some disease or some illness. And I think that's just as real as losing a loved one or really any other major... It is a death that you deal with. Yeah. Part, you know, part of your identity has died. And it was very difficult, um, much more so than um, I would verbalize. Though I think those who know me intimately knew I was struggling with it. But um, to, to go from being you know, a 1% athlete in your life where you, which just drove from the time I was five till 30, it drove everything in my life, right? And, and all of a sudden you realize you're never going to be able to do these things really again, anything approximating. And, and, and then the early days of 12, 13, when I came, kind of came out of the fog, it wasn't as obvious to me until it started incrementally developing. And even as I've shared with you, Pat, you know, with your own pastoral guidance a bit here in the last, it's just, it's it's really uh, moved its fastest in the last 18 months. Yeah. And so I went from just two years ago running, um, and I'll explain why why running and exercise has been so essential. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. But I was running 40 to 50 miles a week and going to the gym and doing all these things. And, And all of a sudden in the the spring of 22, my left leg just stopped working. I, I couldn't get, I couldn't lift my hip up. Wow. And so then I would do what old jocks do. Wow, it's just, you know, it's just a matter of taking some time off and it's mind over matter. And, uh, and so by the, by the fall, I can remember it clearly. My grandson was here today. He was 12 at the time, no, 13. And, um, I, I ran three miles, and I, I couldn't run. I, I, I couldn't run, and it was it'll be the last time I'll, I'll ever run. And, and, and now, that, now it's just walking. This year, I've been trying to get in. Just walking has become difficult, and I've had three aborted, like two week sessions where mm-hmm. I was able to actually walk every day. Where all of a sudden the flare ups would be the point so painful and so much the spasms were so I, I couldn't do it. Can you explain what those flare-ups are like? Is it really just like a f- switch being flipped? Well, it's, it's an increased intensity because um, the thing about what I have, the, the stiffness, the stiff man syndrome, never goes away. So it's just a matter of if you put it on a scale of 1 to 10, where is it hmm. on that day? And I would say... Somebody with the syndrome, it's always a five. You start out, baseline's a five. There's no such thing as a one baseline. You would have a one baseline, mm. right? And, and so then it's a matter of how it goes from that five to ten. Oh. And um, wow. 
And so the five, when it was, the baseline could stay five to seven. I used to stay with my neurologist. You know, I would be able to still run and do some things. And, uh, but it, it's, you know, it's moved. The baseline's now moved to like seven. And, um, and then the flare-ups just move, you know, more towards the, the pinnacle side of that scale. So, um, so it's always this adjustment mentally, emotionally, but most importantly, spiritually. So each one of these incremental movements towards the inevitable piece of the disease is, uh, is a battle. It's a spiritual battle besides all the physical battles and all the, the, the secular perspectives on it are, aren't the things I really struggle with. It's, yeah. it's the spiritual side of the battle. <clears throat> God's sovereign in my life. God's will for my life hasn't changed. You're not a victim. Now, you can play the victim if you want, but it won't do a darn thing for you. I think it's a difficult thing for us to accept in the modern Western American experience that suffering is a central part of the human experience. Mm. And we spend a lot of time trying to avoid it. You, you and I just had a text conversation this week about a, a relatively well-known runner who died, uh, a distance runner in Rhode Island died, and uh, I've known him for 40-something years. And so texts were flying around, this person was a secular person. Most people responding, Facebook, and uh, I don't do Facebook, but they responding on social media and texting me. They're all, they're, this is an overall generalization, but for the most part it was like, they're all mad because somebody in their 70s got sick and died. Mm -hmm. And I responded to a former colleague of mine who was very upset that this person had died relatively quick like a, how could this happen yeah and i and i just responded i said you know i said none of us are exempt from suffering on this side of the veil of tears we will all get it and he didn't like my answer mm. right it, it, he wanted the answer to be you're right it's not fair it's unjustified and i always think back to you know my pastoral experience i hundreds of times as a priest you deal with this i can remember being at the icu at ken hospital woman who was 70, whose mother was 95 years old, was in the ICU. And she was just wearing out, dying of old age. I come out, and she's, she's against the wall. You've been at the ICU in Kent, right? She's against the wall outside of the doors, the electric doors that open. And she's just sitting on the ground weeping. And she goes, she goes, Bishop, tell me, why would God let this happen to her? Why would God let this happen to her? And I'm thinking, wow, McFly. I'm like, hello. <laughs> she's 95 years old. And it's like this utter disconnect from faith. I'm like, when we get old, we die. <laughs> right? You, you don't live forever. It's yeah. like, there's no mystery to that. Right? And she wasn't suffering. She, and I'm like, where does faith come in to quote Christians' lives at some point? Right? Yeah. And um, yeah. I, this whole victimhood thing, everybody, right? Everybody who has any malady, they, what's this? Well, get me a GoFundMe page, right? You That's know, right. You do yeah. this, you do this. You, it's not Josh, how, let's get one of those started, okay? Yeah. It's not how people who are regenerate in Christ respond, or it's not how we should ever respond to suffering. Christians in America especially have allowed 
the culture to influence how they respond to tragedy overwhelmingly. Well, I think it's a symptom of just more broadly that syncretism of taking on aspects of the culture around you. Mm. But I think even there is this increased sense of being disconnected from death. And we talked about this in our conversation on artificial intelligence too, that we allow technology to separate us from the human element of living our lives and then also separating us from the realities of natural law. And so we're able to hold off suffering at arm's length for a little bit longer and right. we convince ourselves that we're never going to die. And even to the point where we feel as though Tower of Babel, right? We're able to oh, absolutely. immortalize ourselves through technology. Just riffing on this for a minute more, because I want to get back to what we were talking about earlier. But did you know that there are startups, I think now, companies evaluating using artificial intelligence where you can train the model on your voice and on your personality. And they're looking at basically you can upload yourself to basically a digital representation of yourself so that after you die, family members and loved ones can interact with grandma or grandpa the same way that they do with Siri. Wow. Because you could train, similar to how they have voice models, right, of famous celebrities and public figures, why not to do that with a loved one and yeah, right. immortalize well, you them know, that way? Yeah, you're, vastly, you, you're vastly more knowledgeable about all this than me, but... Uh, what do you think, Cora? I, I see artificial intelligence. It, we're so uh, ungodly and so not willing to deal with the fact that we're mortal mm. and that there's a, there's a creator who made everything from nothing in this universe. Yeah. That we'll, we'll, we'll take all what you're talking about and actually implement it into like an android that's going to be like oh, a, sure. a replacement of Grim. Grandma never died. Grim is right there. So you'll have... <laughs> A model that How is, sick? It's just so sick. You'll have a model that is trained to look and act with imperceptible similarity to the person whom you're trying to replicate. So you basically can fool yourself and pretend as if that person never really left. It, it, it's uh, we could go on and on. The corollaries to this in every and uh, every angle of your life, right? From your uh, your interpersonal life, your relationship with your spouse, your children, uh, artificial artificial sex lives, all mm, of this stuff mm, mm. is going to be part of uh, of this nonsense. And it's yeah. all it's all ungodly and immoral. It is. And it's like, you know, I'll go back to, I wrote down a note when you talked about that, you know, it's like how we deal with aging. And I, yeah. I've said this many times, is that the Western way to deal with aging is make yourself a facsimile of yourself. Yeah. Especially for females. And this is a this is an expectation that males have produced and thrust upon females. At least females feel this, right? So no no woman over fifty ever has gray hair. <laughs> right? Everybody will get gray, but not everybody it dies with natural their, phenomenon. Everybody dies with their you know, their dyed hair in their casket and yeah. you know, and and the amount of people just spending gobs of their money on getting their body changed and filled and facelift and everything is not Christian. Yeah. Right? We're meant to process and age and and show generations younger than us how to live and how to die. Yeah. I've been thinking about 
the great Anglican divine Jeremy Taylor, who died in 1650, who, who wrote a work that he never he didn't know would become such a classic, holy living and holy dying. Mm. We're called to live a virtuous life, pursuing the great three virtues, faith, hope, and charity, and living them out in our lives in a way that give witness to Christ to the world. And, and then we're called to holy dying. And how we die teaches the world and our loved ones and our brother and sister Christians how to die as a Christian. Yeah. Right? And that they're both two sides of the same coin. And we never stop witnessing, right up to the time we take our last breath, to the sovereignty and glory of God in Christ. And that's as far from the average Christian's mindset, never mind being a staple of a Christian yeah. mindset in, in today's culture. And so, so um, I, I suspect what I say today is going to be about as popular as most of the other things I've <laughs> said in the yeah, Christian ministry that. in the last several years. One of the things I did uh, when I learned I had Parkinson's is I went to a wonderful place in Rhode Island. I'll leave all the names out, but a, a cognitive therapy. Mm. And, and this guy dealt very good. And he, he was a... He dabbled... Well, his, his heritage dabbled in Christianity, but he wasn't... Christians. He found me a fascinating character in so many ways. And, um, um, but his specialty was people with chronic illness, mm -hmm. uh, high percentage type neuro neurological disorders, that you have two choices, as we always do in life. You can continue to live life or you can quit. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it. So, it's options, always yeah. our two choices in life. And so if you're going to, if you're going to have if you're going to deal with what you have, not become a victim, and curl up in a ball. And so with, with him and with my neurologist and my general practitioner, it's like you need to exercise as much as you can mm -hmm. because if you don't use your muscles, you lose them. Yep. And so that's, which is always seems counterintuitive to people I meet. They're like, if you got this disease, why are you running? It's like, doesn't make any yeah. sense. That's what's causing you pain. Yeah. That's what's causing you to get worse, right? And yeah. it's actually the opposite, right? Right. right. Is that, and so, <clears throat> so the fact that at, as you know, at 57 or 8, I was running 50 miles a week, and with Parkinson's, I ran the 10th fastest time in New England for my age group, over 10 miles. And that was just 18 months ago, and now, I, now I'm in trouble walking, right? Yeah. So there's, um, but I'm grateful for that last Indian summer that I was able to have. But if I hadn't begun doing this, um, you know, disciplined and aggressive exercise routine and so forth, uh, I, would not, I would have been in real bad shape five years ago, six years ago. I want to talk about some of those strategies that you use as far as therapies or coping or discipline, but I want to touch upon first again on the therapist that you mentioned. I think, like you expressed, having him there to help you work through this was hugely beneficial. Can you speak to the importance of having a trusted medical professional or really just someone who's there who understands and can help you through it? Yeah, it was essential. It was my, my neurologist who's retired. I'll leave his name out. 
He's a wonderful guy. He's a devout Catholic. And um, he was just, and this was, goes back to 12, 13, 14. And, you know, and it was always, we always talked turkey. He was, listen, you have this, there's nothing, there's no cure, right? There's no shot, there's no anything that it's, it is what it is, both, both syndromes that you have. And, um, but then he shared with me that he had had this difficulty in life, and it was, an, it was a mental, emotional thing. And he, and I had, he went and did a year of cognitive therapy. Now, he, he has a brilliant doctor, uh, not just in his practice, but in, in um, research journals and so forth. He was really excellent. And um, he recommended this place and this specific guy. And I said, absolutely. And I went, I went for two years to him, once mm -hmm. a week. And uh, yeah, this idea that you have to be uh, some mountain man all to yourself and these things don't bother me, don't affect me. Yeah. I, I can work through all this by myself. Well, you're an idiot. You're just being a fool because that's not true, right? We, yeah. we don't have the capacities unto ourselves without encouragement and expertise um, to implement the best best methodologies into your specific case. So yeah, yeah. Like you know, I mean, I wasn't his typical uh, patient <laughs> to say the least, right. right? He's like, you know, I was incredibly fit and all of these other things, and I had just written this book, right? Fact, and uh, he was all into that, and uh, so um, it, it got to the point where him we really became friends and. Uh, I probably exhausted within 18 months, <clears throat> most of his. Uh -huh. But it, it, I, I became his therapist because he, he was moving towards actually seeking the divine again, yeah, I think, wow. in his life. And I, and I think that's, again, how we deal with suffering is always, if you're doing it from a Christian perspective, you're always giving witness and cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And in this case, even if the person who was helping me deal with a, a cognitive strategy to deal with having Parkinson's. Yeah. And that is, it amazes me what God does yeah. with, with, uh, with perseverance and courage. Right. I think that's a good place to pause. We're going to troubleshoot a camera issue and then take a quick break you bet. and hold that thought, though. Okay. All right, everyone. We're back from break. Learn something new. It turns out if you don't plug in your camera and it's battery-powered, that battery is going to die. And then the camera's going to turn off. So... Corey, I've been telling you for months. Yeah. Yeah, it, it turns out it wasn't Mark's strikingly good looks that no, broke the camera. No. It was actually just that the camera itself died. But why don't we jump right back into where we left off? So, Mark, you were finishing a thought about the role that your cognitive therapist had and, and how influential and helpful he was in your development with chronic illness. But I think it seems like you were really fortunate in your situation to be able to find this person. And you hear all the time that people don't always have the luck finding a doctor or a medical expert or a professional who works as well for them. Do you have any advice for that? Do you have anything that speaks to your experience and how you got so lucky? I don't think the word is lucky. I think, first of all, I would say people, when you've been diagnosed with something, you have to the starting point is to accept it's true mm -hmm. and not looking for a backdoor way for it to go away. 
Because if that's going to be your strategy, you're just going to be miserable and you're never going to get anywhere. Yeah. And so when, when I found out the facts of what I have had, and then, then it was like, okay, what, what can I do to help me cope with it? And mm. what strategies to deal with it? Not, I was never looking for somebody to fix it. And so if, if you have that wrong, you're going to go about this whole thing wrong because you're looking, it's like looking for love in all the wrong places, right? You, you're looking for answers where there is no answer. You're looking for the wrong help. Yeah. And so it's not that hard to find help. Once you've been diagnosed with what you have, and then you need to go find out from you know, whatever, whoever it is, your physician or the expert in the area that you have, is like, okay, what things do we do that helps um, uh, slow down the growth of this thing, or how, what kind of coping mechanisms, mm -hmm. what strategies, what exercise, what physical things can you do, mental, social things you can do to benefit yourself now that you've come through your maturation to realize that you can't change this. It's really How are you going to deal with it? Looking for help but most versus people looking aren't for mature. a cure. And that's the problem. Yeah. Most people aren't mature, and so they don't get to the point where they accept that what they have is what's going to be. I think that's probably one of the biggest difficulties people have, and not just with chronic illness, but really just with any life. Any life, exactly. Yeah, life. It's life and it has nothing to do with age. Nutshell. Maturation has nothing to do with age. Oh no, certainly not. It's I, some of the elderly people I've met, the most immature people ever, and I've met twenty people in their twenties are the most mature people I've mm -hmm. ever known. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so you mentioned some therapies that were done that helped you along, but it's my understanding that there were some other more um, invasive procedures or really trying procedures that you had to go through. Could you speak to that experience a little bit and really what your journey was to get to this point? Yeah, there's kind of standard things they try with everybody, right? There was um, injections, and uh, I don't know how many I did, 20 or something like that with it, trying to... <clears throat> get it to a nerve or some section of your back where and they actually shot Botox at one point in wow. my back trying to but none of it worked and my doctor said it's unlikely these are going to work and then there's like a certain amount of times that they are willing to shoot stuff into your back and then then he sent me to Beth Israel in Boston which is probably the premier hospital uh, one of the most premier hospitals in the world dealing with the malady I had, and so they did um, spinal oblations, and uh, they went up two separate times, each side of my spinal column, and it's a pretty freaky experience. <clears throat> you're, you're, you're not really, you're not, you're awake. Oh, wow. Goodness. And you're laying on your stomach, and you're looking up, and there's a mirror there, and literally they're preparing for it, and the needle is that long. <laughs> and and I'm going, that's going up my back. And then and what they, they go up your spinal column. And, uh, and there's, there's X amount. I'm trying to remember this is 10 years ago. But um, there's X amount of, um, that they burn the nerve endings. Right? Hmm. So there's like, it's intense. And it's like about, and they say that, it's like 30 seconds. Like you thinking, I can't deal with this. And they, they look for these nerve endings and they, and I forget the procedure lasted an hour and a half or something, and and a week later it came back, and but it had no cause and effect. Wow. And, and um, 
but th those are things, you know, um, it does help some people yeah. right, to some extent. And, and they do spinal ablations for things other than Parkinson's, right? So um, they don't all kinds of things. It's just one of the things they try, and it might help some people for a while. Me, for my case, it did not. It did not have any cause and effect on it. So, wow. Um, but I got I got to go through that wonderful experience. <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine. It, it, it was it was psychologically more difficult than was physically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like so many things, I'd, I'd rather have that done than go to the dentist. So this really <laughs> put it in perspective. Some people just don't that? like. The yeah, dentists. dentists are evil. Sorry, my dentist. I like you. Yeah. Yeah. If there's any dentists out there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, how yeah. about your day to day in terms of? I don't really want to call them therapies. Coping mechanism sounds like the wrong word, but it, yeah, probably. But is. strategies that you use to really maintain and get through the day and ma manage manage your your condition well it's, it's evolving and in the last 18 months it's totally i've evolved in increments every few weeks now in the last oh. 18 months because it just jumped that far um the first thing is prayer yeah, without absolutely without prayer in the morning and the evening i have no shot because all the other things that are part of our emotional and spiritual brokenness are working on your on your psyche like you're miserable you know your life's miserable man this is like endless horrible groundhog day mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it is if you let it be mm -hmm. it is and uh, and then very much more so in the last six or eight months it's been, you know, and so you have to pray more and you have to be further into that God's sovereign, right? I shall not die, but I shall live, as the psalmist says, right? And uh, I don't mean die in a mortal sense. I mean, immortal, we, we, we don't die forever. We live forever in Christ. And so... Um, and get to the point where I can see it. I, when I'm younger, and even a year and a half ago, I wasn't. I understand when people look forward to being on the other side of glory. I can, I can start to understand that more. And that really only makes sense through a Christian worldview, like Absolutely. a devout Christian lens, because otherwise, it, I think it just sounds morbid. But it's not looking forward to death, but looking forward to life. It's not an end, but it's right. a beginning. It's a continuation. Right. And I'm not trying to like ditch out what God's God's providence is part of my vocation. Suffering's part of my vocation, right? Um, but at the at the same time, I'm not like, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to die in the mortal sense because I'm really enjoying this. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right now, right. Now, when you, you when you're a believer to be with Christ, you know Saint Paul makes it pretty clear where he wanted to be, right? You know, like I'm going to hang out with you losers for a while longer because God wants me to. Yeah. But I really want to be <laughs> out of here, yeah. yeah, right? Yeah, and um, yeah, one of those sweet new resurrection yeah. bodies. And as you know, as a as a biblical theologian, I, I read that passage full a thousand times and explained it five hundred. But I I understand it way more now than I ever did. You know, knowing it in the Koine Greek. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, it's, the reality of it is so much more tangible and right there. So, so the strategies are evolving. Mm. 
And so my, what I could do for a strategy a year and a half ago, would, I could lift in the gym three days a week. I would run six days a week, you know, anywhere from six to 10 miles a day. Yeah. Uh, now it's like I, 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 I'm praying, if it's God's will, I can get back to just being able to walk on a regular day. Uh, so I was working an hour in the morning and work, work an hour in the evening. And even that, I've had to adjust a lot. I used to I'd run, no, never mind running, but I'd walk on a bike path. A month ago, I walked out two miles, and then my hip stopped working, and I was two miles out, and I'm like, I'll Galloway, how are you going to get back to the mill? <laughs> <laughs> right? And, I, yeah. and it's like, it's, it's not naturally intuitive to be, to be thinking this way. Like, and so now I do all my walking in the mill. Wow. Because if, um, if something goes wrong, I just have to get 150 yards back and... Yeah, you know, and the people you know they're getting used to seeing me crawl like a worm now on the. That must <laughs> be a sight to in the see hallway, it. right? So it's a little bit of exaggeration, but not much. Yeah. Um, so there's so much that you constantly have to be uh, at this point where I'm at evolving, but not get despairing. That's that's the great challenge, and it's it's. I'm not going to pretend it's easy. No, none, none of this is easy, yeah. and I don't, whoever is you know in our audience or is listening. If you think you can do it just by your sheer will, you forget it. It's not going to happen. I don't care who you are. Yeah. Uh, it, it has to be by faith and knowing that your life has purpose. It has purpose because it's God's plan. What's happening to you is part of God's plan. And God's expectation of you as his child, as you continue to follow and pursue his fatherly will. That's just so incredible when you truly grasp it, especially that idea of suffering as vocation. I think we can't emphasize enough how radical that sounds to the non-Christian and even the vast majority of Christians themselves. We think we're exempt from suffering, but God in his providence can use our suffering and does use our suffering as a witness to the strength of Christ and the glory of of the gospel. So just as your seasons and stations of life change, so too do your vocations change. And oh, so that right. vocation may be a call to witness to the power of Christ in your suffering, if you're willing to accept that. A hundred percent. That's absolutely correct, right? Um, it's the whole loss of the cross at the center of the Christian faith, right? Is that Christ became incarnate, right? Christ became human to experience the human experience as part of his dual nature, his fully human person, right? And so we, out of faith, attach ourselves to the cross. Yes. We, we assimilate ourselves to Christ's suffering for his glory. It's, it's, it's a central theme of the Christian faith, right? Uh, it's, you know, 30 years as a priest, though, not 10% of, that would be generous, not 10% of the thousands of people I've ministered to have a clue about that. They come to you, both as a priest and a bishop, wanting you to fix what's making them suffer. Yeah. And it's just the opposite, right? The sacraments empower us to deal with whatever God's will is in our life to suffer. Right. They're not there to alleviate the suffering. 
And again, that's a real popular message. But, yeah. it, but it, it's the core of the gospel. It's the core of the gospel, right? You, you, you know, uh, no matter who you are, if you're the greatest physical specimen ever, by the time you're 26, you've reached your peak. Yeah. And if you live to be 96, that's seven years of decline. That's reality. That's a biological reality of being a human being. Yeah. And so, but it's like so many other things, like virtually everything now, we were talking before the taping, facts don't mean anything in this culture. Not and, at all. And so we as clergy, <laughs> our jobs, you know, our job, our vocation, our duty to the God who called us to holy orders is to preach the truth effectively to the sheep he calls us the pastor. And uh, in season I, and out of season. I, and I've learned recently in every season and every nick and valley of my priesthood that that usually disappoints people. The yeah. answer more often, far more often than not, disappoints people. You're telling me, Father, that's it? That's the answer? Yes, Christ is the answer. Yes, that's the answer. Yeah. Right? Simultaneously. There's no placebos. There's no placebos in Christianity. In some cases, it seems too easy. In other cases, it's too hard. It's kind of a paradox to that. And on the one hand, you have people who expect there to be more to it that I have to add to the gospel in order to find some other secret to cure my pain, cure my suffering. And on the other hand, it's really you're asking me to put my faith just in Christ and that's going to help me get through this and it's not going to fix my suffering? Yep. Exactly. And I think you're, and if you're in that situation, you're looking for the wrong solution. You're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. I was also reminded, because it keeps coming back to age, and it's really that same dynamic, right, where so many of us deny our age and the effects that come along with the aging processes. And it's the same denial that we have if we're struggling with illness where both things are normal parts of the human experience, unfortunately. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to downplay the difficulty of chronic illness. What, I, what I'm trying to make as a comparison here is in the same way that suffering can be a vocation our age and our station in life is also a vocation. And there are a lot of similarities to, you mentioned having to change your workout routine to walking around the halls of your apartment complex. Your world gets a lot smaller. And whether, <laughs> whether or not you have chronic illness, we have no control over how small our world gets the older and older we get over time. No, we don't. Right. You know, my mother has been through this trend. My mother's 81, her next birthday. She lived here in the mill for three years with us, which was wonderful. It became no longer feasible for her to live by herself. She lives with my sister now. But it's been a very difficult transition for my mother. And, and, and I think she's harder on herself. It's, it is a difficult transition. But accepting the limitations that we have as we age is very hard. And um, Now, the benefit is my mother is supported by a Christian family. She could have lived, she could have lived here in this apartment. All her children were willing to take her in. Pagans don't even have these options. Mm -hmm. and, and many, Christ, quote, Christians don't really 
implement their op those such options for their own family members, right? They're more than ready to dump them into nursing state home. care or whatever, yeah. right? Now, I'm not opposed to nursing. There's a time and a place where nursing home might be the best thing for your loved one. So I never never tell people, that never tell a loved one you'll never put me in a nursing home. That is, that is not good. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good for you. It's not good for reality, right? There may become a time when that is the absolute best thing for that person. So, but, so adjustments are always hard. And, but that they're, again, they're part of Christian responsibility of being a steward. We're still stewards of our bodies and our beings, yeah. no matter what state of decay we're in. And that, again, is so it's like it's just so hard for people yeah. to register that. Yeah. You mentioned your family. What's it been like on this journey? You've talked about your experience. How has it been for your wife, your family, your friends? In uh, some ways, I think it's been harder for them. And my wife, I, I, I can't give my wife enough gratitude. And, um, but it's created, my wife's already a very busy person, as you know, very accomplished person, chair of a, a school at a college and all these things. And, um, but my illness is, brings more burden to her life. I'm able to do less and less things, and especially in the last 18 months, it's really been expedited. And so it changes their lives. And if that person, and if your relationship isn't based on agape, uh, unconditional love, that what true holy matrimony is about, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, chronic illness, the type I have, you know, whether it's physical or emotional or mental, um, can destroy relationships. Mm. So if your foundation isn't secure, um, when things that come from left field, <laughs> as this happens, you you have the odds are against you, mm. right? So the fact that she's a godly woman, a strong woman, and actually puts up with me is is uh, is a great blessing. So, but it's it's changed her life. It's changed. Um, all these things I were by perception of people, and people still cling to their perceptions of you. They need you to be these things that you were, right? They need you to be cognitively who you were, socially who you were, you know, in the church. They still need you to be this grounded pillar and all these things, and this idea that you can still be all these things even though your abilities cognitively and physically are dissipating, your demise, that they have more difficulty dealing with it than you do, I think, to yeah, a large yeah. extent, right? Father Galloway, Bishop Galloway's always been there. What do you mean he's not here? What do you mean he's not going to do all these things anymore? I mean, he, can't just, he can't just abandon us type of thing. There's all of those things that come yeah. with it when you've been... Uh, You've played that role in thousands of people's lives. It's just, it's just part of. And again, for me and for anybody else, if you had it, anybody had it. You, you have to find a place healthy for you to put that somewhere, because you are not going to meet people's expectations, desires of you. It sounds like it's a given that some balance of your time is spent trying to make 
others feel better about your condition than it is others necessarily coming to you to try and make you yourself feel better. Yeah, no, they, they try and, um, you know, the hardest thing is, is people who sincerely love you or they respect you or they even have uh, a kind of a sycophant view of you is that they want you to be fixed because yeah. they, they don't want to <clears throat> think, think such things are going to happen to them. And if you're fixed, then that's going to be evidence things aren't going to happen. Yeah. in their lives as well. And so I was just saying to you off camera, you know, dear people, they've come to me, what you need to do is do this. You need to go see this doctor. You know, I know you have your own doctor, but I'm telling you, and, and I've said to this one person who's said this to me several times, I go, what I have is incurable. <laughs> so <laughs> your doctor can't cure it either, right? <laughs> and so, but they, they have this need to be able to give you advice or some fix for it because... They're having more difficulty dealing with the realities of it mm. to some extent than I am, even though they, yeah. they really don't know all the details of what you're going through in your life, right? It's, um, but you have to love them at the same time, even yeah. though it's really annoying, <laughs> right? It's like, don't you think if there was some magic answer, you know, anybody with a similar thing, anybody with ALS would go swallow the pill, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, but it's, it's, I have to remind myself to be priestly, and I, I'm not always great at it. And the thing about chronic pain is that it does wear you out. Yeah. Mm. It just wears you out. You simply, I, I wish I could tell you I was Superman, and I, that hasn't been the case, but I simply don't have the ability to, to um, ingest as much information and, and be as maybe thoughtful or as, I don't, I, I can't spread myself out as much as I, I used to. It takes mm. so much more of my energy just to think about how am I going to get up today? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a couple hour process from the time you wake up till you can finish your shower. And so it's like, like you, like today is an early, 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 early start. Right. And so, uh, yeah. And, uh, my sleep pattern, so I only got like three hours sleep, and I, but I didn't want to be deep sleep because I would I would have slept yeah. for you guys being here. Yeah. So there's all of these things that go into it. That is just it's just part of it, you know. And I don't I don't I'm at the point I don't find any need to explain it to anybody. It's just it's my life, and it's like how it's going to be. So it doesn't really matter if anybody knows all to all these details yeah. about it. You, know? you were when you were explaining a little while ago just go through physically sounds exhausting it is a, it is like a workout yeah like it's exhausting it's a workout laying on the floor yes yeah you're literally it's, it's really like you're in the gym you know yeah. i mean uh like uh when i first got this and i was you know i was still really fit it was like i was working it was like i was doing 500 crunches a day yeah. because Literally, that's what's happened to your muscles. Just yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> they go, and people look at you. You don't look sick to me. <laughs> you know, they look like you can. Yeah, you you're can, ripped. You're ripped. Yeah, yeah. it's like good. Yeah. Well, no, it's because my muscles are involuntarily <laughs> contracting all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, wow. it's, um, no, Corey, it is. It yeah. is. But again, I, I don't want to really dwell on it. But it's, it's, um, yeah, it's hard. Every day is hard. 
so it just it just is. So I just leave it at that because it's yeah. not, it's not going to do me any good to talk about how hard it is and give everybody a chart. You couldn't believe what I go through, yeah. right? It's like back to the pain Olympics, the suffering Olympics. Yeah, I'm not yep. inter- I'm not interested yep. in that, but it's yeah. but its effect on family has been like my kids, you know, my grandson and things, you know. At, um, Five, you know, five years ago, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, I'll be able to run with my grandson through junior high and into high school and do these things. And, you know, my other grandchildren, you know, are four and five. And I'm not physically going to be able to do all these things with these kids, you know. And, it, it's, and it's changed my relationship with my children because, um, I mean, they're, I, I, you know, they had this perception, you're the, you're the knight on a white horse. Yeah. Right? And no. And your father was always, you know, Josh, and you, you know, I, I was, I could go out and run and probably beat most all of the kids I was coaching until I was 50 years old, right? And then all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, you know, you go from being almost in the hundredth percentile of a 50-year-old to physically aging beyond your years, like, like a blink of an eye. And... That's what it's, it's hard for my children. I can see how hard it is on my children. Yeah. And so they, they're, they're very caring and sensitive, and and they wish they could make it all go away. Yeah. You know, and uh, but you can't yeah. go away. You know. And so, yeah. And as as tragic as that is, it's still a blessing because you know there's a lot of there's a lot of children who don't care for their parents when no, this absolutely. begins. They check out for a variety of reasons, but they check out. No, no, none yeah. of my kids have done that. And, yeah. and um, I'm, thank the Lord for it. But there's a reason for it, too. The reason is, is what they were taught and how mm-hmm. the house they were raised in, and what they were taught right and wrong is, and what does it mean to honor your mother and your father? Yeah. You know, it's a commandment of, right. of God. And so... Um, I'm grateful, but I'm not surprised that my kids actually do these things because they, they saw them modeled in the house that they grew up in. You know, we've talked about this before. Our house was like was like a hostel, right? There was there was just uh, I don't know. We did this a few. Well, I think we've had 39 people live in our house with us and our family over the course of the years of all shades and colors and races and sexuality is the whole thing, mm. right? And uh, one point, I remember Donna was like, uh, we're living in situation, how old he was, niner, and we had a family and his little boy. I said, oh, just sleep here on the floor. And Donald comes from somewhere and he goes, how come there's some kid on my floor? You know? Yeah. And <laughs> I go, well, they need a place to sleep today, you know? So it's like, and at the time, you know, my, my middle daughter, Becca, she's Rebecca, she's talked about how at the time we used to think, why does dad have to drag all these people here? And mom and dad, you know, we had sharing students and all the people, and homeless people, all the whole gamut. And as they matured and now they're all approaching 30, they realized, wow, what a gift that was. Because mm. you learn charity and unconditional mm. love mm. And, mm-hmm. and what it means to love your neighbor and so forth. And that yeah. it's in giving that you receive and all these things. So... I'm not surprised by their response because um, I, I believe they sort of modeled. Yeah. You know, and they saw that we were responding to people who had crises and needs mm-hmm. all those years that they were came came to live with us, right? So 
I mean, Corey, you're absolutely right. There's always, there's always a gift being given by God to you through whatever's happening in your life. Yeah. 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 It's difficult. Um, I think it's difficult to speak to suffering if you're not going through it um, or if you have yet to experience it. Um, I mean, I won't speak for you, but you're younger than I am. Yeah. <coughs> I, I consider myself remarkably blessed, you know, 45 this year, to have never really endured any serious physical suffering, mm -hmm. no chronic illness, um, other than, you know, what I went through a year ago when, you know, I, I was assaulted and had yep. ribs broken. I mean, that, 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 that's about as bad as it ever got for me. Yep. Um, and a few months of, you know, the healing process, which is pretty bad. And I remember, you know, you, you, you and me talking about it and... I'm complaining about my broken ribs and I'm, I'm sitting in a recliner and, you know, and, and meanwhile, you're, you're suffering on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week daily basis. Um, and so, to a certain degree, it, it is relative, and I don't like usually using that term, but um, there's, always, there's always somebody suffering more than you are. Oh. Um, and so you don't have a monopoly on it, right? But so far, I consider myself very fortunate. But, you know, it's coming. Yes. It's coming, yeah. right? Um, there's no escape. Yeah, you never know when you're going to get hit 55 miles an hour no. by somebody in a no. car. No. Right? You didn't control that. No, you just don't. And um, it, what's always stuck in my mind is when Christ says, you know, this very night, your life could be right. required of you, oh. right? which should fill you with dread, um, but also in the light of you know, the resurrection, it should also fill you with hope because you know that even if that is the case, you know who your advocate is, right? right. And so, um, but that, that's, that's reality. Yes. And it's something that we certainly have lost in our culture, progressively so. Um, and even if you want to look at it from a historical perspective, um, the pre-Christian Greeks were very well aware of the tragic nature of life. Oh, yeah? That's all they yeah. ever wrote about was tragedy. Right. Right? It was either comedy, because they knew you right. could only go through life right. one way. You can either look at life and laugh at it, or you can look at life and, and understand that it's a tragedy. Of course, the key was they believed in immortality of the soul. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? And so... Um, <clears throat> It's just something that, it's an awareness of reality that the modern world has lost. And uh, there's probably a variety of reasons why that is the case. But um, whether it's in the churches or outside of the churches, it's a serious problem. You know, we, we, we I was just having a conversation with my wife the other day about dying here. Because she's getting gray hairs now. She's not going to like me saying that, but mm. she's dying her here. And you know, so, what, what are you dying in now? You know, and she's like, I, 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 I want to do this color. And I said, okay, well, why? And she says, well, because I'm, I'm not ready for gray hairs yet. I'm like, well, when will you be ready for right. gray hairs? Right. You know, I have gray. I mean, first of all, I lost all my hair when, <laughs> when I was 22 years old. So, I mean, I had no say about that. Um, I only accepted that maybe about 10 years ago. Then I started shaving <laughs> my head finally and realized that it was probably, you know. I can't comb this over. Right. I can't, there's no combing this over, right? I, and I don't have the money Donald Trump has to do that kind of comb <laughs> over. So, um, 
<laughs> and, but even then, you know, but then, you know, my beard starts going gray and mm-hmm. it's, um, gives it away, man. Yeah. And, but the, the reach is a point though, where you accept it and it's like, this isn't a bad thing. You know, it, this is, this is reality. And if you live in reality, you will be a, a, a healthier person in spite of physical troubles that come your absolutely. way. You'll be wiser. You will be healthier emotionally, spiritually, um, but that's that's a difficult sell. It, it, it reminds me of something. I, I, I got a haircut like two or three weeks ago. I've been going to the same barber for fifteen years. Good for you. And he's um, <laughs> he, he, Mark Marco. He 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 may may or may not listen to the podcast. He doesn't always agree with my Catholic theology. So, but he but uh, he's a cancer survivor. Yeah. Uh, you know, by statistically, he should have been dead years ago. He's a serious Baptist and. Uh, um, and there's always like typical barbershop there's all these all these guys between 40 and 60 you know everything in the world right you yes, know yes. you know how the whole barbershop scene is and uh, so I'm in there I'm in the seat and the guy and he's always and you know the guy's guys using guy language and and he's like hey you guys behave there's a bishop in the seat here it's <laughs> like I'm like oh good grief right like that's going to change their Whole temperament, but so the one guy, he was, he was uh, mid thirties. He's like, "How old are you?" I go, "I'm 59." He goes, so "He goes, how come you still have like basically brown blonde hair? Where's all the gray hair?" I go, "I don't know." I don't, yeah. He goes, "You dye your hair," yeah. and I start <laughs> laughing. Right. I, start, I go, and he goes, "We laughing." I go, I, "I go, just the idea of dyeing your hair." I go, "Wouldn't even ever come on my radar." Yeah. I go, "I barely comb my hair. <laughs> never, never mind dyeing it." And it's like, but how? How prevalent that is in the mindset yeah. of even a thirty-five-year-old yeah, guy, right? right? Yeah. He's like, "No, you die it. Come on, lie. Right, right, no right, lie right, to me. Right, you die right. it." Yeah, 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 you, yeah. you know why? It's interesting because my father was a. T- I was a towhead till I was thirty. My father was was a towhead till he was thirty, and then at thirty-five, his hair went white. Wow, just like that. Wow. And I used to think, well, that's what's going to happen to me, but mm-hmm. it's never happened. But yeah, I want to go back to a thing you said, and it ties up th- what what Nathan has said about suffering. Emotional suffering is far more destructive mm-hmm. than physical suffering. And what the vast majority of people listening to us and that we pastor to is that they're in chronic emotional suffering. Mm-hmm. And they don't know what the solution to that is. And they, they think the solutions are in sex, drugs, rock and roll, prescription drugs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, Prozac, and um, not that there's not a place for these things at sure. times. Sure. Take out the sex, drugs, rock and roll, but um, but we're so emotionally paralyzed as a culture, and we're so emotionally unhealthy because we're so godless, yeah. and we become more so every day. And and those who this tiny <clears throat> remnant of us left who stand on not sinking sand but solid ground yeah. become more and more freaks to people, and I think that's what. But my, even my cognitive therapist, he used to go, go like, you're not like anybody else I've ever, ever. And he has had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients. He's like, he goes like, I'd have to tell you, you have to exercise. You're like an exercise freak, you know? He's like, he's just trying to get the average person to walk up and down stairs three times a day. Yeah. And they're like, I can't do it. Mm-hmm, I can't mm-hmm. do it, right? And, and he's like, you're going to kill yourself. You know, calm, calm down, you know? So yeah. it's... This emotional paralyzation in our culture 
is the downfall of Western civilization. Yes. It it's is. certainly a downfall of the Christian church. Yeah. When Christians are paralyzed because they don't actually believe in the gospel, they don't believe that, uh, that suffering is part of the deal and that all of Jesus' promises are true and that Christ, God in Christ is incapable of not telling the truth, is we have nothing to offer the world. They have nothing to offer the world. Mm -hmm. They can't wholly live and they won't wholly die. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, that's... So how do you, how do you talk to people... Forget about, again, in society, because they don't believe in anything, but how do you talk to people in churches about not only suffering and that it's inevitable, but that it's actually good for you, it can actually deliver you from sins, from passions, right, and be not the road to death, but the road to life. It's, it's Well, I, I had dinner with one, a protege of mine a couple of weeks ago who was asking me these very questions. I yeah. don't think I came up with sufficient answers <laughs> to... Uh, yeah, it's... We've talked about it in other podcasts, you know. Uh, 30 years ago, I would have been able to come up with, I think, sufficient answers for the majority of the sheep. Um, I don't think that's the case anymore at all. Yeah. I, I think so few people, e even conservative quote, mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. like that, I'd rather say faithful, aware, catechized Christians, mm. you can hardly get them to deal with reality. It's just, uh, it's tremendous. I think we just keep plucking away like we're doing in this conversation. I said to the rector, just the last couple of days, we just keep doing it and you speak to the remnant, and eventually the remnant will grow. Mm -hmm. But you're gonna have to be very patient. Oh, yeah. You know, like the James saying, the farmers are going to have to wait for this harvest mm -hmm. three, five, seven, nine years. And eventually, the, the church that exists now, it won't exist. There will reemerge a church that looks very different from the church that exists today. Uh, it'll spend the rest of my life. Mm. Um, the, the hardest thing is it hasn't even bottomed out yet. We haven't bottomed out yet. We, we got a ways to no, go. No. Yeah, we got a long ways to go to bottoming out, right? So. And then, then real suffering will start to take place in America. And yeah. It won't be about medical suffering. It'll be about financial suffering. Yeah. And that's what people will drive their emotional state even into worse decay. Yeah. Because that's all they really care about. Yeah. It'll, be, it'll, it'll, it'll move into an existential crisis for people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the, the propensity for most of them is going to be to embrace nihilism. Yes. Because they have no... They have no they, Explain nihilism to the audience. Yeah, it's just the belief that nothing really matters. Right. You know, nothing really matters. And so this is it. Well, isn't that just nothing really matters? Queen. Yeah. Right? And, and he didn't end so nothing well. Nothing really matters anymore. Right? Right, yeah. And that's, uh, people know that song better than they know Amazing Grace, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Right. So do. It, it's, um, yeah, whenever, whenever music that's uh, on the radio is more important to a Christian than the actual sacred music, you know you're in big trouble. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. And you can even see that, in, you know, not, not to go, not to get sidetracked, but you can even see it in churches, right? Oh, absolutely. And we can talk maybe on a future podcast about the sure. importance of music and, you know, oh, yeah. why yeah, it's not just an add-on, but it's essential. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I, I never allowed secular music at all. Like, you know, like at funerals, people wanted uh, Eric Clapton. Yeah, like, Tears in Heaven. Tears oh, in yeah. Heaven. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. This lady's yeah. like, I go, absolutely not. 
And she's like, who do you think you are? I go, well, I think I'm the bishop. <laughs> that's who I think I am. And so that's, and I said, listen, I said, Eric Clapton, at the wake, play all the Eric Clapton you want. But I said, and God's, I said, in front of the tabernacle, in front of God's presence, we're not playing Eric Clapton in this church. Yeah, right? yeah. And of course, you know, she didn't like me before the funeral. She liked me she, less she after the funeral. She didn't like funeral. you that after. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah. It's like, but for her, that's suffering. Right. Yeah. How could you do that to me? How could you do that to me? That's not love. I'm upset. I'm like, absolutely, it's love. I'm upset. It's total love, right? Yeah. Like, the only thing you should be given to God in this place is glory. Mm. Right? Not some... First of all, the song's horrible. What it says is just horrible. Yeah. yeah. Right? And, um, but... Yeah. So it is. Right. right. There's a right. great tragedy within the church and elsewhere that we conflate things not going our way with suffering. And that drives us to overreact to relatively minor misfortunes in our lives and leaves us unprepared to face any real suffering that may befall us as a part of the... Well, that's the modus operandum of both sides of the political divide. Yeah. Right? Yeah. To go my way. My guy didn't get elected. My world is over. And so yeah. they go on Facebook and like... It's all, it's all over. Everybody and like cry and sure, crap right. on everybody and everything else. Like, it's yeah. unbelievable. Right. Like, they really think this one person is going to change the course of human events. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. There's only one person who's ever changed the course of human events. And only Amen. one who can. That's it. So... Amen. Get on board, people. <laughs> but you believe he was real, Corey. Come on. Yeah. 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 Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> I want to bring it full circle here. Uh, one thing that's been on my mind as we get closer to wrapping up, what are some ways that people can best love or care for others with chronic illnesses? I think in your experience, you've probably seen both the good and the bad, and a lot of it relates to what we were just talking about. Well, as my wife says, just throw them in the river. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't there a river right behind right behind there? The river. Yeah, river. Yeah. That's what I used to right joke. She's like, That's why you moved she goes, what am I going to do with you? I said, well, you could just throw me out the window. The river's like right, yeah. literally right outside this window right now. Um, what's the question again? <laughs> what, what advice would you give to people seeking to care for loved ones with chronic illness? What are some ways that people can best love and care for others? Things that do's and don'ts, if you will. Well, do don'ts are don't pretend it's what's real is not real. Don't do that. Always live in the present reality. And um, do's are continue to love and communicate with a person as if they're real mm. and not trying to. Uh, go around their difficulties or pretend it's going to get better, right? All this like syrup junk that people want to talk about, it's, it's not helpful. It doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Talk's cheap, it don't buy rum, right? And so um, d- dealing with your realities and family realities means that you, the person who's not affected, it needs to take more responsibility in the family. And so they don't like that idea generally, mm. so they avoid it. Yeah. And so they'd rather talk syrupy stuff. You know, that, just hang in there, man, Dad. You're going to feel better. You're going to feel better in no time. No, yeah. I'm not. 
Just keep fighting the good fight. No, no, I'm not going to feel better. All those I, platitudes I, that people yes, fall I, back on. I'm going to keep fighting the good fight, but it's not going because I'm going to feel better. Yeah. It's because I, that's what I need to do, and it's what my moral responsibility is to do. I, I don't want to interrupt. I, I, I don't want to take that away from you, but it's always interesting. You, know, you see it a lot when people, when people pass, and you hear things from, from those who are left behind say, well, they, they lost the fight. They were never going to win it. <laughs> no, what, what are you no talking about? Only one person's ever won that fight. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? This was going to happen. And then, and then it, 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 and it, just go, and it just goes on. You go to a wake, you go to the funeral, and then you hear people say, wow, they never looked so good. <laughs> what are you talking about? What do you mean they never looked <laughs> so good? First of all, that's vaguely that insulting. Yeah, I, didn't right? look, I, mean, I didn't look good this morning at 7 o'clock. <laughs> right, I'll tell you right yeah. now. And it just, it's just that <laughs> mindset. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because they're, they're struggling with death, which they certainly are. They don't know how to respond to it. They don't know how to be in the presence of it. Or if it's just this idea in their minds that, there was possibly another option here. No, there was no other option. Th this was coming, and it's coming for you too. Yeah, we could have traded right? for Ted Williams. Why didn't we? Tra <laughs> yeah. Why didn't we trade for Ted Williams? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's just so peculiar, and and it kind of, and it does. I think it does relate to what the dues would be. The dues would be, don't tell lies to people. No, that's right. Yeah. Don't tell lies to someone who's suffering. Give them hope. Certainly. But don't give them a false hope. Right, eternal hope. Right. And, and that's... Yeah. And when, when my time comes, when my time for suffering comes, I don't want anyone to lie to me. And I'm, talking, I'm not even talking about doctors. Forget the doctors. I'm just talking about normal people in my life. Yes. Will they be able to comfort me, be a presence, you know, maybe listen, talk to me, whatever the case may be. But don't lie to me. Yes. And don't lie to yourself. Yes. Yeah. Don't lie to yourself because I know that part of you is lying to me because you are also lying to yourself. Yeah, and, right. And, and, you know, in, in the one suffering, don't lie to your family. Right. Don't lie to your friends. I'm going to be okay. D yeah. Don't lie to them. Just, yeah. just de deal with facts. Right. That's right. that's how life is. I mean, yeah. you can't accomplish anything without dealing with facts. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. We got a lot of people who have problems with facts. Right. <laughs> in society today, so yeah. 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 So, so the, the do's and don'ts really aren't that complicated. No, they're they're, they're pretty uh, common sense, really. But yeah. it's just not how the average person ever operates in their life. Families don't deal with reality. <laughs> they don't deal with problems in their families. They don't deal with relational problems. Mm -hmm. They don't even mm -hmm. you know. They ignore the most obvious things. Junior's gonna. Junior doesn't really have a drug problem. He's just going through a rough spot. Yeah, no, no, no. He's a complete addict. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, he's a good kid. Yeah, seen it all. The yeah, time. well, that's yeah. good because he's good and stoned. Right, right. It's like um, you go back to the apostolic <clears throat> core of the church. Right. Again, I think the average Christian just never remembers this. All the apostles died for the faith. Yeah, they're martyrs, which is why the faith endured, expanded, and exploded across. The ancient, yeah, in the Middle East, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it was true. These guys yeah. are willing to die for it, mm -hmm. and that's why it took off. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, the proof was in the pudding. Um, 
I, I, don't, I, I think the average Christian thinks Christianity fell from the sky. There was no suffering involved. It was just like... It's a new some, religion. They just came like up with it. It's like some cool philosophy yeah. people bought yeah. into and that it wasn't based on the fact that millions of Christians died early from persecutions and mm -hmm. all these other things. And the more they killed them, the more they multiplied. Yes. Um, especially progressive Protestants. They didn't want to hear any of that stuff. No. It's like, are you kidding me? It's because they love the world. Right. They love the world. Right. The world needs less devout Christians. It doesn't need more devout Christians. Right. Devout Christians, right? So yeah. It's, yeah. it's all backwards. Mm -hmm. It's all backwards. It's all running from suffering. Because if you, you, you know, here I stand. If you say that, you're going to suffer in this culture. Yeah. Here I stand. And um, I don't know. I know a handful of people in my life right now who would do that. You? Number's very small. Yeah, it's getting small. Yeah. It's, it's, it's shrinking. Yeah. It's shrinking. It's uh, yeah. few and far in between. Yeah. And, uh, and we learn hard lessons that there's people we think would be able to do it who can't do it. Yeah. One last yeah. thing I want to touch on here that hasn't really come up so much <clears throat> is the role of the sacraments in your journey as you've lived with chronic illness and really just more broadly with facing suffering and how having the sacraments as a central part of the Christian experience really plays into our ability to keep the cross at the center of our lives. Can you speak to that, Mark, as to really what the sacraments have been to you, what they've meant to you? What they've done for you throughout your experience absolutely uh, and again without the foundation of knowing the efficacy of the sacraments and the centrality of them in the, in the life <clears throat> of the christian and the church i would not have been able to do that right i, I wouldn't have also magically just become a christian who, who believes in the presence of christ and his his grace and sacraments uh, um so yeah, through it all, you have to always be returning to the essentials. And the essential is, A, you're baptized, right? And because you're baptized, nothing can separate you from God and Christ, not even your sin, right? Um, so that's always the thing you go back to is that I'm God's child, right? And I'm sealed in Christ forever. And uh, secondly is the, um, your participation in partaking of God's presence in the, in the Holy Eucharist is that um, as, as the prayer book famously says so that he may dwell in us and we in him mm. and uh, that the, the, without the belief in the supernatural effect of Christ's the ascended Christ's meeting of us in the sacraments I, I, my hope would be little right? but because it's true and I believe it, it's, it's the ultimate bomb of Gilead. It's the ultimate, um, you know, not to get into a whole biblical thing because it's not the time, but it's literally what is meant in the Lord's Supper and in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. is isn't talking mm. about, if you actually extract it in the, into the Greek text, it's really, it really has a connotation to the Eucharist. Mm, right. That's not what most people think. They're mm. thinking, oh, you know, it's... Give me some food. Let's go get some grain from a wheat field in Kansas, yeah. right? Yeah. No, it's about give up. You know, Jesus is the bread of heaven. That's 
That's the connection, right? So that's how connected to the Eucharist we should be daily, whether it's a spiritual communion daily or a physical partaking of the elements daily. But the most, the most significant for me, besides those two bedrock realities, the two, two primary sacraments, is, is I need to be, constantly be in confession. Hmm. You know, A, a as, a, as a baptized Christian, B as just uh, a perverted normal man, and, and C, being a priest, right? Is that um, need to be in contrition every day and when necessary, go speak uh, to a presbyter, confess if, if need be, and seek counsel when, when necessary. Otherwise, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna make it. Yeah. Right? And so, and, and the, more, the more this has got difficult, the more contrition I have to show mm. and I have to display with God every, every evening, every morning. I get mad at myself because, <laughs> because I'm such a jerk. <laughs> you know, and God, and I think, I don't know why yeah. God likes me. I wouldn't like me if I was God. But he does because God's so gracious, so to anger, and full of loving kindness. And so um, contrition always works. Yeah. Sincerity always works. And you'll need to do it again tomorrow. Right. So... Is that, is that helpful? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think that is. I think it's uh, going back to our conversations around the great tradition. I think it's something unique and central that churches traditions of the great tradition can offer, and is really something that I've been grateful for, and clearly that you you and uh, Corey are also grateful for as well. I think that's probably a good place for us to leave it. Do you have any final words that you'd like to share, either of of encouragement or anything else on your mind regarding suffering, chronic pain, chronic illness? Well, I think it's a cliche that always gets thrown out there, but from a perspective of a regenerate Christian, no situation is ever hopeless, mm -hmm. ever. There's always hope because there's only three things that endure in life into the next life, faith, hope, and charity, faith, mm -hmm. hope, and love, right? Mm -hmm. So hope is everything. And hope isn't wishful thinking. Hope is, hope is the knowledge of you know what's actually true and going to happen. That's what hope is, right? And so when we live our lives that way, no matter what situation you find, and this, again, this is hard for a non-believer to accept, you always have hope, right? Because no matter what befalls you with any chronic illness, it's not God thwarting this on you. It's the inevitable fact of a fallen world yes. that yeah. suffering yeah. is part of it, right. right? And so if you, if you can't get that equation right, you'll never have hope, right? And so that's what I would say to people. And if, if they're not believers, you know, you've looked, you've looked in every other place for answers to these Things that why don't you why don't you try faith? Yeah. Just try it. Yeah. What do you got to lose? <laughs> Nothing. Right? Try faith. And uh, it'll it'll change your world. It'll change your perspective. It'll change your eternal destiny. And that that's what I would say to people who are um, not just chronically suffering, just trying to make their way through a dark world yeah. with no light. 
we know our light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. Mm. And when you actually know that, that you're not afraid of the dark. <laughs> and when you say everybody, you, virtually everybody you meet is afraid of the dark. Yeah. Right? So, so true. That's what I would say. Other than that, there's no magic answers. Christ will take your hand and he'll never let it go. Correct. I carved you in the palm of my hand, Mm -hmm. you know, Isaiah says. Even if a mother should forsake her child, I'll never forsake you, right? That's that's the God that we worship. That's the God who loves us. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for sharing your experience. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us again, as always. That'll do it for today's conversation. Another reminder, please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating if you enjoyed the show. It really does mean a lot to us. We look forward to seeing you again next time. God bless.